Ой, шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, И сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where each week we cover topics relating to Eurasian politics, history, and society. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just one guest today, Michael Kaufman on Russia's so-called hybrid war. Michael Kaufman is a public policy scholar at the Kennan Institute, where he specializes in security and defense in Eurasia. His most recent publications are How to Start a Proxy War with Russia on the National Interest website, and with Matthew Rohansky, A Closer Look at Russia's Hybrid War. So over the last year, hybrid war has entered the lexicon for understanding Russia's annexation of Crimea and its covert war in Ukraine. What is hybrid warfare and why is it used to describe Russian actions in Ukraine? Right. Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, what is hybrid warfare is still, I feel, quite very much in debate, at least in, in the United States from a military doctrinal perspective. Hybrid warfare is reasonably well defined, although that term is not necessarily being used that way. Uh, the way a lot of journalists and other commentators are talking about in relation to Russia. So hybrid warfare at its essence is very simply the combination of a couple of traditional bins of warfare, right? You have your conventional warfare, which we're fairly uh, uh, accustomed to. You have your sort of unconventional regular warfare, right? Typically, which we consider to be insurgency, which we're also quite familiar with. Um, and then you have terrorism. And uh, then you have uh, various other domains that could be used, such as maybe criminal activity, whatnot, uh, to other types of uh, political warfare, information warfare. And hybrid warfare is just a combination of those spectrums being used, you know, operationally in a coordinated campaign. Well, why is it applied to Russia? Well, uh, most people, when they comment on Russia's, you know, invasion of Crimea and then following on uh, sort of starting... Uh, a separatist insurgency in Ukraine, but then subsequently invading eastern Ukraine as well, they look at a combination of means Russia has used. And the most main ones they point to is basically the use of uh, Russian special forces and um, regular Russian military units simply uh, unmarked and unidentified with their patches off. And then they look at uh, Russia essentially uh, using mercenaries or funding an insurgency, funneling volunteers into eastern Ukraine to fight as part of the separatist force. Uh, and then they look at aspects of Russian information warfare, which is essentially broadcasting various types of propaganda, um, very heavy messaging in the Russian language uh, that they see as targeted towards the Ukrainian population, the Ukrainian Russian speaking population and uh, the rest of the world sort of in combination um, with these operations to uh, create both uh, uh, support and create a great deal of sort of disinformation about, you know, what the real cause of this conflict is. You know, the standard Russian message that this is really a civil war amongst Ukrainians and that Russia is not directly involved and that Russia is actually trying to resolve this and it's actually the West that's trying to escalate the conflict. Sure, sure. But you, you point out, and, and others have in, in, in different ways, that there are limits to, to hybrid war as a concept. What, what would be those limits? Right. Well, so I, I feel our work kind of tries to pour some cold water uh, over hybrid warfare. I think that it's become sort of this, uh, you know, flavor of the year term. 
Um, and it's actually uh, quite limited, and it was originally meant to be quite a limited scope, but now it's been expanded to um, not what it was intended for, but meaningless, frankly. Uh, and I think it's because it's being used by a lot of people who generally do not comment and don't involve themselves in doctrinal thinking or military affairs. So, uh, first of all, hybrid warfare is not meant to be thought of in strategic terms, right? Hybrid warfare is not considered to be uh, something that a country strategically uses against another country. It's very operational and primarily it's tactical, right? And so to kind of maybe for your audience to understand, so tactical is maybe we're talking about the particular set of battlefields, operational, and we'd be talking about, you know, the entire Russian operation in Ukraine. Now, strategic, we'd be looking at Russia versus the West or Russia versus NATO. So a lot of people have piled into all these, you know, uh, bins into Russia's conducting hybrid warfare against the West and against NATO. And um, Russian, you know, fighter and bomber overflights through NATO airspace is part of hybrid warfare. Uh, RT and Russian English-speaking media, you know, state-operated media, that's hybrid warfare. Uh, Russian military exercises are hybrid warfare. Uh, all of it is sort of part and parcel of, um, you know, one big operation. That's not the case. Hybrid warfare is not strategic. You can't just bin everything. And they also go back in time and they say, you know, hybrid warfare started long ago and eventually it starts getting very confounded. First is hybrid warfare is not strategic, Okay. What people have started to do is they started looking at various uses of national power that Russia has, like any country, right? That it's using as part of confrontation, that it's using as part of pursuit of long-term strategic objectives vis-a-vis -vis the West, and calling that hybrid warfare. So that's the first problem. Hybrid warfare is primarily operational, and most of that's tactical. Um, second, hybrid warfare connotes that sort of, it's all part of a plan, right? But the reality is that, you know, if you read uh, our publication, a number of other people that are kind of, I, I'd say, doing um, good, detailed, fact-based analysis, you see that most of Russian operations in Ukraine are not part of a plan. They are improvisations going in phases, right? And so it's very hard to say this is all hybrid warfare and it's a hybrid operation that they've put together. The reality is it's not. It's a set of improvisations that they're going once one set of assumptions after another set of assumptions gets proven wrong and they're forced to adjust. Third part of it is we really split off really big parts of this information warfare and the overall public diplomacy contest and the battle sort of for the minds in the global information space with Russia as not being part of hybrid warfare. It's actually not being part of a doctrine of hybrid warfare and is really being something that has preceded the entire conflict in Ukraine long ago as part of a general contest strategic contest between Russia and the West in the information space. Hybrid warfare is not very explanative. It's a term we've latched onto, but I think we're slowly starting to walk away from. I see generally, by and large, as a Western overreaction, analytically speaking, to really not having focused very much on the Russian military and on any threats and what NATO calls in-area operations in Europe. And then having been quite surprised by the annexation of Crimea and the war in Ukraine, uh, immediately sort of leaning full tilt in the other direction and saying, this is all part of, you know, a well-conceived operation. It's nefarious. It goes well back in time. And it's called hybrid warfare, you know? It's interesting because it, the way you've described it in, in kind of the way it's been described in, in more popular media, which is what I'm more familiar with, is kind of an all-encompassing concept, which everything can be thrown in and collated, as you say, in some sort of kind of strategic operation where it's really just 
the elements are a means to kind of project power and project influence and engage in warfare. And some critics have actually, and you just kind of mentioned this, but I'd like you to expand that some critics have suggested that the hybrid warfare concept is, is a reaction to Western inability to counter Russia, and that for the first time in a while, the West is the object of hybrid warfare rather than its subject. How is the concept of hybrid warfare a reflection of Western unpreparedness and surprise and really a reluctance to directly counter Russia? First, I mean, I think we have to understand that hybrid warfare is a term, but what it describes in practice is as old as warfare itself, right? And what I think we need to walk, walk back from is the notion that hybrid warfare is something that emerged circa early 2014, you know? Uh, hybrid warfare is simply an adversary combining different means, and it's been called many different things during previous iterations, sort of military doctrine thought, modern warfare, uh, political warfare, uh, from the Chinese perspective, unrestricted warfare, um, and it, it goes, you know, it's, it, it, it's as old as war itself throughout time, right? We've seen it many times before. Almost no war is a straight-up fight in the conventional space or the, you know, the unconventional, the irregular space, you know. It's, it's always a combination of various means an adversary uses. Now, why hybrid warfare in particular? Well, I think the, the case in Ukraine is quite interesting. So hybrid warfare, and here's important to separate two other ter two terms that people normally conflate when they talk about it because they both have the word hybrid in them. Hybrid warfare and hybrid threats, right? The U.S. has a very good conception of hybrid threats. A good example of a hybrid threat would be Hezbollah. That is, a, a group that is both an insurgency, a very well-organized army with some very modern conventional means like rocket forces that has real, you know, uh, political presence in a state and also conducts terrorism. So you're talking about an organization that sort of spans all the concepts, you know, the within uh, that we would call the hybrid threat, right? It's a conventional threat. It's an insurgent, you know, uh, irregular threat. It conducts terrorism. It conducts criminal activity. It has conventional technology that's modern, but it also does all this other sort of asymmetric warfare. Hybrid warfare and hybrid threats are not the same thing, so a lot of people have conflated them. And hybrid threats are pretty well defined in U.S. military thinking. Hybrid threats is really one of the big challenges we're facing around the world today. The reason hybrid threats have emerged is because of U.S. predominant conventional superiority, okay, and escalation dominance in any conflict. That is why hybrid threats have emerged around the world, right? And we have to remember, we are the most powerful country in the world, and we lead the most powerful defensive alliance in the world, on top of the power we already have, right? No one can contest us in the conventional space. They just can't. It's not realistic for them. Uh, and that's led them to expand to all these other traditional, you know, bins of warfare where they may have comparative advantages and they can utilize some of our advantages. Why Russia conducts hybrid warfare in Ukraine? It is for them a fairly low risk, low cost means. It's interesting that they chose this path, of course, because you have to understand that hybrid warfare traditionally is the path of the weak. The reason why somebody conducts conflict 
in the hybrid space as opposed to just engaging in the conventional space is because they're weaker than the adversary. Russia is infinitely superior in the conventional space to Ukraine. And this is, again, we did not comment on this in our publication, but I will tell you this is why I think hybrid warfare is not a very good example, to uh, uh, analytically speaking, to really describe all the things that Russia is doing in Ukraine because hybrid warfare is traditionally reserved for the weak. And Russia is not contesting the West in Ukraine and is far superior to Ukraine conventionally, right? So what you're looking at is not really hybrid warfare. All right, we've just sort of, um, we've latched on to this different, see, what you're looking at is a good deal of innovation and we've latched onto it and we've grouped it and we put a good term on it. And part of the reason we've done that is a way of saying, what Russia's doing is new, and it's unfair, and it explains why we didn't see it coming, and it explains why we're unable to effectively deal with it, right? Mm. Do, you, so, do you understand yeah. the kind of if, – if you think back to how it's been overall described over the past year, this is really the main strains of thought you see coming out of it, as though Russia's come up with something new, and that this is somehow unfair according to the general rules of warfare, and that explains our inability to effectively address it in Ukraine. And if, but if you if, if you really drill down into uh, the history of this conflict and Russia's operations, you'll see that that's very much untrue. In, in what sense? Well, first of all, that what Russia's doing is nothing new, right? Both hybrid warfare is as old as war itself, and what Russia's doing is really uh, it's a set of covert operations, which, which you saw at the beginning of the annexation of Crimea, followed by a very conventional military invasion. Then switching to, again, a covert operation, followed by a very conventional military invasion. And frankly, since August, Russia's been engaged in conventional combat that not only goes back to World War II, realistically, it more goes down to World War I. And this is the difference between maneuver warfare and position warfare. Combat in Ukraine is about 70%, I'd say, if not more, position warfare, akin to World War I, and maybe less than 30% maneuver warfare, more like World War II. It, what, you mean, what you mean by this is, say, the overpredominance use of artillery versus uh, absolute constant engagement of troops. Artillery against fixed positions yeah. versus the maneuver of formations, right, mm -hmm. of mobile formations. And what you're looking at is a straight-up conventional fight, all right, in Ukraine. That's been going on since August, right? And leading up to that, what you were looking at was a covert operation on the, you know, on the Russian end of it. Along with, you know, definitely bring in aspects of regular warfare, which is, you know, uh, uh, paying volunteers, training them, etc., etc. But what Russia's running in Ukraine today is a standard, you know, train and equip mission, the kind of thing we've been doing to stand up, you know, what you would say on our end, we've done it to stand up the Afghan army or the Iraq army. Right. Russia's trying to create an army, an army that's a mini version of its army. It's not trying to create um, some kind of Taliban in Ukraine. It's literally trying to build a small version of the Russian army along the structures that the Russian army currently uses. Going back to it, you know, there's nothing special or new about covert operations followed by a conventional military invasion. That's not hybrid warfare, you know, mm. right? I mean, um, and the fact we can talk about the information warfare as an aspect of it. But what I'm saying is there's not much hybrid about it, you know, and people very much said, when the annexation of Crimea started, Russian troops appeared, okay? And they didn't have their patches, their unit markers on, and they, and they had basically painted off the numbers off their vehicles, but everybody knew they were Russian forces, and people said, this is hybrid warfare. And I said, no, it's not. 
These are conventional Russian forces. They just took their patches off. It doesn't make them hybrid forces. There's a covert operation. They just they just took off their patches. You know who they are. That's what's kind of surprising to me in a lot of this kind of the back and forth debate is that everybody knows and sees what is going on, and it's very clear in terms of Russian intervention, the arming of rebels in eastern Ukraine, their training, the taking off the patches where they're obviously <laughs> Russian forces. But but they there's this kind of obfuscation that continues mm-hmm. that to say that, well, it's not that, in a way. Right. The obfuscation and the general sort of much broader, I think, disinformation campaign that Russia's been engaged in, this is a very critical part of warfare. And that's a part of warfare that, frankly, the information space, Russia had always, when you look at their analysis, particularly, let's say, how poorly they fared in the Russia-Georgia War in 2008, which spurred... Uh, well, I wouldn't say that spurred that was the cause of Russia's military reform modernization, but it was sort of like the last nail in the coffin in Russian debate as to how badly they need to restructure the military. One of the things they really discussed in the Russia-Georgia war and leading up to it, the Chechnya war, was how bad they handled the information space, right? And you saw a huge investment in that area over the last uh, 10 years and um, really ramping up the ability to confront the Western information space because, frankly... The West, Western media, dominates global information space, period. And it's very anemic to Russia, right? Russia's an autocratic, you know, uh, uh, country. It's very hard for them to survive, right, for mm-hmm. their government to advance, you know, their message uh, to a global audience, you know, not even a Western audience, let alone to a global audience, um, when Western liberal media institutions dominate that space. So uh, this big disinformation campaign, this is a key aspect of war, and we often understand Lying is a key aspect of war. When you're in a war, you lie, right? That's why Eskola said long ago, truth is the first casualty in war, Mm -hmm. right? Psychological operations, propaganda, what we sort of, I think, very nicely called in Afghanistan strategic communications, you know? Uh, um, Lying and advancing your message is a key aspect in war. The focus of, of... Russia's campaign is not really advancing so much its message. Maybe in the story, you know, what happened to the MH17 Boeing. Um, maybe in that case it is, but overall it's not. It's a disinformation campaign simply designed to discredit the message of the West. Russia's position is not that Russia's right and the West is wrong. Russia's position is that the West is wrong, and that the West is not credible, and that the West is hypocritical, and that's a th- it's a toss-up. And it's actually, it does a pretty good job. All it's doing is it's trying to create ambiguity, right? So basically, you say Russian forces shot down MH17 with a buck M1, and Russians come up with, you know, five different theories of how it could have happened, and they can come up with, you know, five experts for each of those theories, right? And they put them all side by side, and each one of them has a different idea. And when you're done, you know, listening to this, uh, what you don't come away with is the perspective of, okay, the Western position is clearly wrong, and Russia's position is right. What you come up with a perspective of is, I don't know who's right. I see there are multiple possible ways this could have happened. I see that the Western story is not necessarily, you know, I'm not 100% certain of what I believe now, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all that Russia wants. That's right. all it wants, is it wants you to not be 100% certain of what is true. And, you know, with respect to its involvement in Ukraine, I mean, look, pretty much there's... It has to be one of the least secretive, least hidden wars. I mean, all of it is out in public space. It's on YouTube. Russia has not really controlled the social media space at all in this conflict. It's very open. 
anyone except an incredibly lazy person can see the extent of Russian military operations and involvement in Ukraine. It's quite accessible. It's, you know, um, uh, it's been oddly built up as a shadowy war when it's very open to anyone with Internet access. And I think most Russians fully understand it and know about it, and all the people right, that are out there that are unconvinced at this point will not be convinced, right? They're sort of, you know, I hate to put it this way, but, you know, if you, if after a certain period of time you still think the Earth is flat, then there's just nothing that's going to convince you of it. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> right? There's not, I'm just, you're just not going to be able to be convinced. But, sorry, I kind of, I may have gotten sidetracked, but I hope that answered, yeah. that answered part mm -hmm. of your question. So the reason for the obfuscation, obviously, for Russian perspective is, well, first of all, it, it's, it plays very well into the negotiations they're dealing with the West, right? It's very helpful in, in, um, in creating space amongst the West for uh, the possibility of compromising with Russia, for accommodating it, for those who are voices that are less hostile to Russia in the West. Um, it creates a lot of maneuver room in diplomacy, which, by the way, is important. Because I will tell you, Russia has the predominance of um, military power in Ukraine. And it has, I think, the predominance of, as well, economic power when it comes to its ability to severely damage Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. Far more so than ours. And Russia could do, I mean, it, it could do infinitely more than it's doing now, right? And contesting it directly in that space, I think, for the West would be very difficult. It's possible, but it could well come at the cost of Ukraine and Ukraine's future period, right? I often say uh, no country during the Cold War that hosted a proxy war between the West and the, and the Soviet Union uh, came off for the, the better for it. It actually burned a lot of countries. So, yeah, I think that obfuscation is obviously it's important for uh, domestic audience, right, and for denying the extent of Russia's involvement, casualties, all that. But it's also important for how Russia deals with the West, and uh, it gives us this maneuver room that we don't have to say. We, we, can, we can choose how much we acknowledge in the public space Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that either opens or limits our options to dealing with Russia to negotiate a settlement. But we all understand what's going on. I mean, I think... You know, any re even reasonably informed person understands exactly what's going on in this conflict. You know, let, let's comment, get to your comments more on this informational warfare aspect of it, because a lot has been made, particularly in the Western press, about, say, the presence of RT um, and how this needs to be countered. And there's uh, several calls every once in a while to, to fight Russian propaganda and create mechanisms and institutions to do that. <laughs> Um, how do you evaluate the extent of Russian success in the information war, particularly through an institution like RT? I mean, you already pointed mm -hmm. out that their whole mission is to question more. That's their slogan. But how successful actually is this? Right, right. Well, okay, so it's important to understand RT is global, and it started long before right. the conflict in Ukraine. And it was part of sort of overall Russia's strategy to create space for itself, maneuver room in the world period, right, and to be able to create space. Uh, essentially breathing room for itself and to engage global audiences um, and to fight the sort of what Russia sees as this domination of Western liberal media, etc., etc. Now, it's quite fascinating, so we've gotten very fixated on it, but the reality is the Russian information warfare has had really no tangible results in Ukraine or as an aspect of this conflict. We focus on it so much, right? And I 
it's, it's almost, I mean, I can, I can analyze it, take me a while, why I feel we're so fixated on it, but here's the truth, right? Studies have been done on us. Money's been spent. Research has been done by quite credible people. What they find is that the, you know, the impact of Russian uh, propaganda on Russian speakers and Russia's overall information warfare campaign has really been, by and large, I think, negligible. All right, it's had no substantive impact on this conflict and on Russia's operations. It really did not shift public opinion in Crimea until after Russia's annexation of Crimea, uh, and it's really it's not shifted public opinion in Ukraine very much either. I mean. Um, and it includes, by the way, uh, eastern Ukraine, where the bulk of Russian speakers reside. Uh, there have been studies done in uh, our publication. We quote uh, Gerard Toll and John O'Loughlin, who um, got a National Science Foundation grant and got to do a lot of surveys in Ukraine and come up with results that really show that um, uh, it, hasn't, it hasn't really had that much impact. And that uh, there are other studies done that really look at the extent of Russian transmitter penetration to Russian-speaking audiences and Ukraine as a whole, right? And they look at, you know, what are the attitudes and what are the voting patterns of people who receive Russian broadcasting, okay, versus people who can't receive Russian broadcasting, and the difference between people who receive sort of the high-definition, really good Russian broadcasting in Ukraine versus those who don't or don't get it at all. And what they find is that it's led to absolutely zero social mobilization, which you would need if you're going to start a genuine insurgency, okay? Right. None. What they found is actually it hasn't had much effect up until the last couple of years, and most of the effect is polarization. And when I look at that, I have to tell you, look, in America, when I turn on the TV, I say the number one thing I see is that CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News are very polarizing networks, <laughs> yes. right? Mm -hmm. I would say that the primary impact of their broadcast is polarization in the political space. And so the most I can confer of impact in Ukraine to Russia's, you know, propaganda campaign is political polarization, which I think, by the way, you're going to get anyway with, you know, the Maidan, the election of Petro Poroshenko, and then the Russian invasion, right? I mean, you can't, you can't stack any more polarizing events on a country in one era. I feel it's been incredibly ineffective, and that the, the ra it's a stunning ratio of Western fixation on this aspect of what Russia is doing in Ukraine versus actual relevance and impact of the conflict, which has been very low. Uh, its relevance to influencing audiences, I think, overall across uh, the West has been quite low. Um, I, don't, I don't substantially see it as having an impact uh, uh, on a lot of audiences. I think it definitely, yes, it's definitely polarizing. Um, but the Western response, I'd say particularly the Ukrainian response, has been quite unproductive. So Ukraine's decided to battle it, I think, by and large, not so much with truth, but with setting up uh, their own political messaging and what I would call very similar propaganda organizations that, you know, are very, uh, very much associated with Ukraine's military effort, the anti-terrorist operation, are kind of quite uh, every day it's very much rah-rah everything Ukraine. And then basically passing laws that uh, really limit, I'd say, freedom of press, freedom of information. There are a lot of complaints about it in the Ukrainian press. Uh, in the West, by and large, I don't think that countering Russia propaganda by investing more in sort of um, uh, the lasting heritage of uh, our broadcasting programming during the time of the Cold War, like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice America, all that, uh, is going to be at all helpful. Propaganda is not our strong suit in the West, and, you know, by and large, I think conceptually, just as Western liberal democracy, you don't counter propaganda with propaganda, you count, you know, in government paid for messaging. 
you counter it with uh, uh, with truth, and you don't really have to counter it that much because it's not very effective, to be frank. Now, I say that as a person who regularly appears on Voice of America, Russian service, right, and Ukrainian service. But um, So I do support those efforts, but I think we have to understand that I don't know what the numbers are for uh, the audience uh, for Radio Free Europe or Radio Liberty in Russia, but it's tiny. Okay, it's microscopic, and I don't think it's going to expand even if we quadruple their budget or double their budget. Um, And I don't think that's the right way to go, frankly. I think that we're targeting the wrong effort. We're targeting something that's not very effective for Russia and is not the primary problem in this conflict at all. We're dealing with something that's really not part of Russia's hybrid war in Ukraine. It's part of Russia's overall geopolitical contest with the West in the world, right? And we need to think of it that way. And we need to realize that our means are infinitely more powerful than Russia's means, right? Think of all the Western press that these today dominates um, the information space in the world, right? When you go on the Internet or, when you know, uh, international networks and compare it to what Russia can do. It's, uh, I mean, the West by and large enjoys dominance in the space. It's very puzzling why we would invest money into it. I forget, I don't know if I read this in in your piece or or somewhere else in terms of the functioning of propaganda in the overall concept of hybrid war. You know, most of Russia's propaganda effort is actually geared internally to the Russian population. Right. But as somebody pointed out, like I said, I don't remember if it was you or somebody else, this is just old style authoritarianism. This yeah, is the nature I mean, of authoritarian government. Right, it's a dictatorship. <laughs> it's a dictatorship. There's no new hybrid warfare here, right? It's <laughs> right. a dictatorship. They control almost all the media, and uh, the last two years, they always had a slice sort of, of media that they left as independent voices so they could point to them and say, look, not all the media in Russia is controlled, and they by and large killed those in the last uh, year and a half, right? Most of them are pretty much gone, and those that aren't gone, they're going to be shut down fairly soon or, or, or purchased by government-affiliated entities, so uh, they're pretty much getting rid of it. But, you know, we just have to understand, yeah, it's targeted political message in support of Russia's foreign policy, which, of course, is what any country does, right? You've initiated foreign policy. Russia's foreign policy is aggression towards Ukraine, so you're going to say that the Ukrainian government, uh, you know, is illegitimate, that it arrived to power via coup, that it's, you know, fascist in nature, supported by fascists, you know, and that... um. Uh, it's really a marionette of the West, uh, and you're going to set it up this way, part of a foreign policy, and it's part of a war you have in mind, right? And that's what pretty much countries do. And what we're kind of talking about is some sort of novel space, right? A country lies in war, an authoritarian, you know, an authoritarian country uh, that controls the press lies to their people in support of a war they've launched against a neighbor, right? And this is like new and novel. I hate to really differ with uh, respected people like Wesley Clark, who recently came back and did another one of these reports with Phil Carver, said. Russia's engaging in a hybrid warfare. It's never been seen before, and it's new and novel. And I literally think the opposite of that. And, and, and I don't even think that that's a problem, frankly. The, the hybrid warfare as a concerted operation in Ukraine does not exist. We have created it by putting a lot of things on PowerPoint and sequence <laughs> them, right? We've, you know, sort of, you know, if I tell you I'm going to put... I'm going to put three, you know, uh, disconnected points on PowerPoint, and by writing one to three next to them, I've now, I've now structured them into, into a coherent uh, operation. I've unified them. But that's not the case. You look at a clear series of improvisations on the Russian part, and it, you know, I could walk you through them in about, like, maybe 30 seconds, which is 
after the annexation of Crimea, okay, they tried to start a covert operation hoping to launch an insurgency in Ukraine. It doesn't work out. It becomes very clear for them by May right. that there's not going to be any Novorossiya, that there is a there there to Ukraine, which Russians never believe, okay? And that the support for uh, separatism in Ukraine, in, even in eastern Ukraine, is very low. They changed tax. Ukraine, after Poroshenko's election, uh, lo- starts to actually get something together in a sense of a conventional military operation to contain, first contain separatism and then work it back. And that ultimately leads Russia in August to decide that this whole covert operation will not work and we're going to have to go the conventional route. And Russia openly invades Ukraine towards the end of August, around the 20th. And uh, it's been a conventional battle uh, ever since. And, you know, I, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time, but you see, you know, a clear set of improvisations based on a set of assumptions, those assumptions being proven incorrect, and then them being forced to adjust. And clearly they did not want to do it this way. It's quite obvious, right? And, but they've ended up doing it. But, you know, obviously, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? And the enemy gets a pretty big vote of what you do, and Russians figured out that there's a lot more to Ukraine than they thought there would be. That's what they realized. And have, but, you know, having learned that, they've adjusted now. Meaning, in 2015, we are probably looking at a Russia with a clear strategic objective and a really good understanding of what they can do in Ukraine and what they want to do, versus 2014, which saw a lot of um, adjusting on their part. And finally, uh, in your article, you recommend that we understand Russia's intervention in Ukraine in in more basic terms, is the way you put it, in in which the U.S. itself would find deeply familiar and use some of these terms in the article, concepts like power projection, for example, which is a a very well-established term and concept in international relations. Why are these kind of simpler terms better suited? Um, I feel they're better suited because they give us a lot of clarity on, uh, you know, one, what the military balance is, who has the dominance in the instruments of national power that they can apply. If you kind of read that last paragraph, I very clear, we very clearly spell out that when you're looking overall, looking beyond Ukraine, but also in Ukraine, is Russia using, you know, what we in the U.S. consider, you know, the four main instruments of national power, you know, which is... Right diplomacy information, you know, economic and military, okay? And it's using them in a concerted fashion the way we regularly in the U.S. government talk about trying to use all of our, you know, instruments of national power in any conflict. At least ideally we like to. It obviously hasn't turned – it's a lot harder – it's a lot harder, you know, in application than it is in, uh, you know, in, in design. But um, I think uh, that talking about – Russia's military operations in Ukraine, which are primarily conventional, uh, Russia's very significant uh, economic power and influence over Ukraine, which remains and will continue to remain, um, is very important. And then, you know, we can, you know, the whole information aspect of it is really the weak and almost irrelevant part of uh, almost irrelevant arm of Russian national power. Uh, and diplomacy in the global space is a particular strength for them, right? Where Vladimir Putin's shown very effectively that he plays a weak hand of cards very well, is very quite effective in basically uh, uh, leveraging what is a structurally weak country mm, into fairly effective maneuvers in the diplomatic space. And as you saw, you know, we're in the U.S. We're starting to potentially reengage with Russia again. 
Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to have analytical clarity, and that really helps to understand things. So when people talk about terms such as escalation dominance, right? Like, does Russia really have escalation dominance in Ukraine? You know, um, I think it's important that we under, uh, we have clarity of terms, and we don't bin them all together, right? We don't throw them all together. We don't call it hybrid warfare. Uh, we don't call things new that aren't new. We faced them many times before. And that allows us to apply strategies and lessons learned from history, which we have a lot of, right, mm-hmm. behind our belt, and how to deal with it. It's kind of, it's kind of my, my overall concept. But I think, I think it's also important for us to understand that there, there is a strategic challenge here from Russia that has been going on before Ukraine and will continue after Ukraine. This is even assuming optimistically that somehow the conflict in Ukraine freezes, you know, uh, this year, right? That there's a strategic challenge from Russia, and we need to think of this in more strategic terms. And, you know, very subtly hinting at the fact that we are facing the same strategic challenge from China. And that challenge is much more problematic, all right? And how we deal with Russia in this space would be very important for us to understand, I think, how we're going to have to deal with China. We're all kind of learning lessons, both us and the Chinese, from this current confrontation with Russia. That was Michael Kaufman, public policy scholar at the Kennan Institute, where he specializes in security and defense in Eurasia. He is author, with Matthew Rohansky, of A Closer Look at Russia's Hybrid War. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter, at Sean's Russia blog. Until next week, goodbye. Моя морозочка, моя ты куколка, моя морозочка, моя ты душенька, моя морозочка, а жить так хочется, я ведь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.